Well, many of you know my parents. How many of you know my parents? Almost everyone. If you're visiting today, you don't know my parents, but uh, most all of you do. And uh, they attended our church here uh, for more than a decade, and uh, hardly a month goes by that uh, one of you don't ask, um, how are your mom? How's your mom? How's your dad? And... Um, well, let me just kind of give you a little update. Uh, my, my father is doing great. They are, whatever, my dad is 80, I don't know, 7, and my mom is 86, something like that. My, my father's doing great. My mother's struggling. Um, she's not got an exact diagnosis, but struggles with dementia, struggling remembering what takes place from day to day. And because of a stroke a couple years ago, she has trouble expressing herself. She can understand what's going on. She just can't remember um, and her struggle is really to put forth uh, words, really to communicate, though, though she often does. Um, um, but, but in this situation, right, my father is, is shining. Um, you know, my, my father's an orthopedic surgeon, um, but now I told him, Dad, you were an orthopedic surgeon for your uh, occupation, but now you're a nurse. And uh, that is totally what he is. He's doing a great job of caring for my mother uh, caring for all her physical needs, cooking for her, cleaning for her, washing her clothes, um, is really doing a great job of directing her to the Lord, constantly reading scriptures to her, praying for her, singing old hymns to her, doing everything a husband is called to do. Men, everything that you are, are called to do is to nourish your wife and care for your wife. So thankful for a, a dad who's showing that for our whole family of just one who's really coming under my mom, like Christ, has come under the church to die for the church. Well, my three sisters and my brother and I are, are getting to see this, this great example of walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And our mother's very happy. Um, all our earthly needs are being cared for. <laughs> like, she'd be like the church. Like Christ has cared for us in every way. What, 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 what do we have worries for at all? And uh, about the last 10 to 15 years ago, they've been... Last 10 to 15 years, they've spent their winters in Arizona, where they are right now. And really, because of circumstances, my sisters mostly have determined that one of us siblings need to be down there with them kind of at all times, as, as much as possible. And for the most part, my sisters have taken their turns going down. But this past week, Yvonne and I uh, were in Arizona uh, to take care of them and to see them. And that's why I kind of come back with this uh, illustration, just being, seeing afresh how well my, my dad is doing at, at serving her. And um, we, we were down there, uh, you might, I, maybe I'm a little more red today, we took a walk um, yesterday, no, Saturday, Friday we took a walk, and it was supposed to be like a four mile walk, but we got lost and turned it into a seven mile walk without sunscreen or anything, it was really a, a wonderful time. Um, but I, uh, we, we returned um, yesterday afternoon, we returned home, and uh, I had an experience this past week that's probably unique to all of you, though I'm not exactly sure. Um, We'll see. Maybe we'll take a quiz afterwards whether you've any of you experienced this before. But it was Friday night, the night before we're coming back home, and we got to we got to get up early, like get up about five thirty in the morning or so, in order to get to the airport to get back here um, noonish or so. And Ivan and I were sleeping in bed. It's about four in the morning, and I, and I'm and I'm I'm awaking there, and I'm I'm feeling something on my my head, and I'm I'm like and I, I swash it off like that, and all of a sudden I feel this huge pain in in my in my finger. And I was jolted out of the bed trying to figure out what happened. That is what happened. Have any of you been stung by a scorpion before? Am I the only one? Andy has? Andy's the only one. Andy Krauss. Um, well, let me just say it's not a pleasant experience. Um, the best way I can describe it is a bee sting on steroids. This uh, particular scorpion is called a bark scorpion, the most venomous scorpion in North America. And thousands are stung every year, and uh, only two fatalities have been recorded in the last 50 plus years. So don't worry, I'm still alive, I'm going I'm to live, all right? So it's not a, a fatal thing, but it's not pleasant. I, I was stung on my, my right ring finger, and uh, suddenly it, it hurt. It hurt, hurt pretty bad, but... Not so bad. I took some Tylenol and then uh, tried to go back to bed because we had to get up real, real quickly. And um, so I was just kind of laying there. I, I, maybe I fell off asleep. I, I'm not sure I did, but I felt like this tingling start to come and it started moving down my finger and moving onto the back of my arm and has since like come up my arm 
and he even got about my armpit. My, my feet have been tingling and my other fingers of my, uh, on this hand have been tingling. You can't see it, but even like right now, uh, my finger is, is very numb right here. And I have some, t- it feels like a sunburn kind of right here. Um, I'm, I'm expecting within the next 72, to, whatever, 24 to 72 hours, they say all, all the symptoms will go away. But for me, I just say that it's not pleasant right now, but it's tolerable. You would never know. You can't even see where things were, but this, just, just trust me, like this finger is very, is very numb right now. I can't, it's just kind of tingling along. Um, so how does this apply to our text this morning? Well, it doesn't. It's really a great story, but it sort of does. It sort of does. It sort of, but Avon says you, you can't not tell that story. And when next book we're going to preach through, we're finishing Acts today, but we're going to preach through Revelation next. And when I get to Revelation chapter 9, the locusts that come out sting like the, lo- like the, sir, the scorpion sting. So I'll be able to, you can remember this day, I'll be able to describe that, what that's like. Um, here's my best guess, though. I would just say that uh, we're going to find Paul in home arrest in Rome. And it wasn't such a pleasant experience he had, but it was tolerable. And so there's the transition. What I have is not so pleasant, but it is tolerable. So open your Bibles to the very last two verses in the book of Acts. And here we are. I began to preach this book the last Sunday in August of 2020. And so here we are, two and a half years later, finishing up this book um, from my count, this is the 88th message that I've done in the book of Acts. And, and I trust really you've been, been challenged, as I have, Let's, I'm going to go back here, to the, um, the main message of this book, is to be my witnesses, to tell others of what we have seen and heard. And I don't, I've just challenged myself. My, my aim in preaching through this book is that I would have an opportunity, and I've been praying about that, to be a witness to somebody every week that I might be able to tell you and show you how I'm trying to apply what Acts is about. And um, that's been my aim. That's been my goal. Hopefully that's your goal as well. It's the way that the kingdom is going to be built through us being witnesses. But this is the great application of the book. Jesus told His disciples that they would be His witnesses. You you can turn back to the very first part of 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 the book. Acts chapter 1, Jesus was with the disciples, and he said in chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, and that's what took place in the book of Acts. We see the apostles, empowered by the Holy Spirit, becoming witnesses in Jerusalem and in the surrounding regions, and even here, right, reaching to the ends of the earth. And now we're here at the end of the book, and we see Paul being a witness for Jesus. I want to read our text. It's just the last two verses of the book of Acts. He lived there two whole years in his own, at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. In these verses, we find Paul in Rome. He'd come to Rome as a, as a prisoner to ultimately stand before Caesar. In the past several weeks, right, we have seen and traced Paul traveling from Jerusalem to get to Rome. Uh, that, that voyage, that difficult, dangerous voyage across the Mediterranean Sea. And it, and it, was, it was filled with danger. He was lost at sea. They, they had lost all hope of even surviving until they saw that island, which turned out to be Malta, and they ran their ship ashore and the the, the ship all broke into pieces. Paul was there for three months. But finally now, he came back to Rome. And we were there last week. But now he's, he's in Rome. It's past a, a few couple days. right? You, you remember back in Acts chapter 28, verse 17. He'd been there for three days. He called together the Jews. says, hey, I just want to talk to you and tell you about the, the hope of Israel. And then the Jews had gathered together. And so he, he preached the gospel to them. And some of them were persuaded um, if you see in verse 24, some of them were convinced by what he said, but others disagreed and they, they battled back and forth. And so some were one, as always is the case almost in the book of Acts, that people believed, other people didn't. And um, that, that was like his first week. But now we see what's going to happen for his next two years. In fact, we see the time frame there, right? He lived there for two whole years at his own expense. And so what we covered last week was just a few days of his first week in Rome. Now we're going to cover like his last two years 
in Rome. Don't let the size of these verses fool you. There's a lot that goes on here in verse 30 and 31. My, the title of my message this morning is Two Years in Rome. Right? And, and by way of outline this morning, I just want to take six words just kind of straight from this text uh, just to explain and open up these words. Okay, The first word is this. It's called living. I just want to think about his situation. How, how is he? In two years, he's, he's living here. It says in verse 30 that he lived two whole years at his own expense. And the best way to understand this is, is house arrest. Now, today, prisoners have house arrest with ankle bracelets. They, they tie, uh, the police do, uh, bracelets around their ankle that they just can't get off in, in any way. It's connected to GPS, and so they know. You've been at your home, or if you've gone out from your home, then they can track you down, and they're going to bring you to the prison proper if you will. But, but Paul was, was in a house and um, he was under arrest. So they didn't have ankle bracelets back then. They, rather, they had Roman soldiers and Paul was chained to a Roman soldier um, just all the time, 24-7. The soldier was just always there keeping guard over a year. And that, that, that's a long time, right? Two whole years. While he was in Rome, he was under house arrest for two years. In Jerusalem, Paul had already spent two years in prison awaiting a trial, and here it is again. He's now in Rome for two years. He's going to wait a trial. Um, and for best we can tell, if you piece together the rest of the, the New Testament, he was probably here two years and then released, only to go about and visit Titus in Crete and go to Ephesus and drop Timothy off there, only to come back and then finally be in Rome before he was uh, executed. As tradition has it, he was, um, his head was, was cut off. But the two years here probably was because, you know, there's just delay. He couldn't get before Caesar for some reason. And one commentator suggested that a two-year period of detainment went beyond the statutory period for prosecution and thus sort of released a little bit, like he was in Jerusalem. Like, well, we, we can't figure out quite what's, what's wrong and we release you. But still, he was under arrest for a long time. And without minimizing how difficult this time would have been, it seems it wasn't all bad and my guess is his imprisonment here in Rome was much more tolerable than his imprisonment was in Caesarea, where he was in a proper prison. As you might say, right, <clears throat> like my scorpion sting, it's not pleasant, but it is tolerable. Still, he had the bothers of guards, he had the bothers of chains, he had the bother that he couldn't get out. He had to stay right there. And you can see this in the second half of verse 30, which is, I'm just picking up this word welcome, right? He lived there two whole years at his expense, and he welcomed all who came to him. Paul's house arrest was not solitary confinement. On the contrary, it seems like Paul's house became the gathering place for much Christian activity. And I mentioned last week, right? Remember when, when Paul was going to Rome, he, he landed in this place called Puteoli, which was a city which was, you know, about 40 miles from Rome. And, and he found some believers there in Puteoli who he, he visited with and fellowship with. And then there were several other cities um, along the way, the, the Forum of Apius and Three Taverns were between Puteoli and Rome. And when they heard that Paul was there, they came and greeted Paul and helped walk with him and usher him into Rome. It just kind of shows you how many believers were surrounding Paul, even from day one. And he knew many believers in Rome. In fact, in Romans chapter 16, Paul, before ever visiting Rome, knew more than 25 people to whom he sent his greetings. And I just want to read... Romans chapter 16 for you, the first 16 verses, just so you kind of get a sense of just the, the community that would exist in Rome. So here was Paul before he'd ever got to Rome, Romans 16, 1 through 15, right? I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So here's Phoebe, right? And, and Phoebe, is, but she, maybe she was the one who brought the letter even to Rome. And greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. These were tent makers with Paul. They employed Paul. So Paul knew these very well. They risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Okay, we've got slow. We've got so far Phoebe, and we've got Prisca and Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila, whatever. And all of a sudden, now greet also the church in their house. So they got a house church. So that's another group of 10, 15, 30, 40, who knows. Um, a greet my beloved Epinetus. He was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. And these names are going to start coming. Greet Andonicus and Junica, 
my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsmen, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. We don't know how big his family is. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who's worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen of the Lord. Also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncretus, Phlegion, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogius, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympias, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss, and all the churches of Christ greet you. My, my, my reason for just reading that list, this was several years before he ever got to Rome. The, the Christian community was strong in Rome, and Paul had a lot of personal contacts in, in those, with those people in Rome. And now by the time Paul got there, Probably not everyone in this list was there, right? But I would say most of them, many of them would be there. They probably would have come and visited Paul. You know, I picture this house in which Paul is in, sort of like a ministry house. Um, not, not sure, you, maybe you can picture like a, a campus house on, on, on a campus someplace where, say, that campus crusade, a crew, has like four or five guys live in this house and, and, and I know that there are places like that, and when four or five guys of a ministry live in a house, that's like where all the activity happens, where, where everybody, oh, there's a gathering Wednesday night, oh, we're going to watch NCAA tonight, right? This is like, that's the happening place, and that's what it was with Paul. I think it was a natural place for many Christians to gather in Rome to include Paul. Paul couldn't go out to their church, right? So they came to his church, and they were just there all the time. And uh, with, with Paul, I think there's no shortage of people to come and visit not only those who knew before coming to Rome, um, but, I, but I'm sure also their friends and those who came to faith through Paul's ministry, whether it's Jew or Gentile. Uh, I mentioned already in Acts chapter 28, verse 24, that some Jews were persuaded by what he had said. And if you look in Acts 28, 28, Paul, where, when the Jews rejected it, some of them did, he said, they'll let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. So the idea is, I've talked to you Jews first. Now he comes into town, he speaks to the Jews, and then he's going to speak to the Gentiles. And he's trusting that many of them are going to believe as well. There's no shortage of people with Paul who are coming to see Paul. In verse 30 then, we see what Paul is doing with all these people coming to him. Right? He lived two whole years, his own expense, under house arrest, and welcomed all who came to him. Verse 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And again, by way of outline, I'm just taking the next word, proclaiming. This is what Paul does, right? He's preaching to people who are coming. He was heralding. He was speaking to them. And notice it says here in verse 31 that he was speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Now, in many ways, right, the, the kingdom of God has a, is, a, is, is a simple way to just include what's the big story of the Bible. You say, what's the story of the Bible about? You say it's about the kingdom of God. It's about a God establishing his kingdom. Um, that is, God is a king, and he's establishing his kingdom here upon the earth. And even if you keep that in mind, that's helpful also in your evangelism, to realize that, that God is the king of the earth, and that what are we doing? Are we submitting to the king? Are we rebelling against the king? That kind of puts the whole lordship of Christ just right there on display. We need to submit to, to our loving king. But when Paul is proclaiming the kingdom of God, I, I think he's trying to show the whole flow of Scripture. For him, it was the Old Testament Scripture. And just showing what the kingdom of, of God is about. And surely he would have gone back to Genesis. In the first chapter of Genesis, where God creates Adam and Eve, he creates them as kings. He creates them as a king and queen. Listen to Genesis 1, 26. Then God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's king language. God created Adam and Eve to be kings, king and queen, over the earth. It says in verse, chapter 1, verse 28, after he created man in his own image, male and female after he created them, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moons on the earth. 
from the beginning of creation, Adam and Eve were to have dominion over the world. And yet, they failed. They failed to be a, a good king and queen. They rebelled by eating of the forbidden fruit, failed in the responsibility to rule the world, and all their offspring likewise have failed to rule as well. They've lived in rebellion against the Lord. But God in His sovereign plan, right, with Adam and Eve failing to be kings, is going to establish His own king upon the earth. And actually be a better way, not with people who could fail, like Adam and Eve, but with His Son who would never fail. He would bring His Son onto the world to be a king forever. And He did this first by establishing His people, by calling Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, right? That's Abraham's call. Genesis 12, Genesis chapter 1 creates man and woman in the garden to be king and queen. And chapter 12, then He calls Abraham. Genesis 12, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham here would, would be the father of this great nation through whom the blessing would come upon the whole earth. And particularly that blessing would come along through a king. And that king was of the line of Abraham and of the line of David. Second Samuel 7, here's the promise that God made to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That is Jesus, God's son, going to ascend to the earth to be the king who's going to reign upon the earth. Of course, remember what Jesus said when He came. Mark chapter 1, verse 45 says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God was at hand because the king was here. The king had come to establish his kingdom. And Jesus, in his ministry, often spoke about the kingdom. He gave parables about the kingdom, what the kingdom of God is like. And in fact, if you look back again at the very first chapter of the book of Acts, you got... Jesus raised from the dead, but he had 40 days before he ascended into heaven. And he's got there like seminary school with the disciples for 40 days. And while he was there, do you remember what his topic was? Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, that is in the Gospel of Luke that I, I wrote to you before. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering, after his cross. He was resurrected alive by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. It's how Acts starts. It's how Acts ends. It's about the kingdom of God. Jesus it was talking and telling his disciples about the kingdom. right? Uh, about this kingdom that God is establishing right? from, from the line of Abraham through the line of David, and the king, and he's the one, I'm the one, I will rule and reign. In fact, he was talking about the kingdom of God so much that the last question the disciples asked Jesus on the earth was about the kingdom. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Like now? Are you coming as king now? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. So it's not, I'm not going to tell you when, not gonna, but my Spirit's going to come, and you're going to be my witnesses. In other words, right, to build the kingdom, it's through faithful witness of the followers of Christ. And how encouraging that is, right? The kingdom of God comes through faithful witnesses of the followers of Christ. So realize this, church family, like, here's the big application of the book of Acts, right? To be my witnesses. Why? Because that's how Christ is building his kingdom here upon the earth. Are you building his kingdom? Are you being his witness? I mean, if you're not, we might as well just wipe out the last two and a half years we've been going through the book of Acts. But even going forward, right, we still need to be my witnesses, be the witnesses of Christ. And that's what Paul was proclaiming. He was proclaiming the, the kingdom of God. Now, certainly there's more about the kingdom of God than the, the creation and Abraham and, 
and the Davidic covenant, but those are the big things you need to know. You need to know Genesis 1, the creation. You need to know Genesis 12 and the call of Abram. You need to know 2 Samuel and the Davidic covenant. Like these are big pillars in the Old Testament you need to know. But there's also another way, Jeremiah 33 and the new covenant. You need to know about that. Because that's even what Jesus speaks about, him bringing in the new covenant, where, where God would change us from within, within our hearts. But there are prophecies in the Old Testament. Prophecies that, that prophesy of this coming kingdom, that, that prophesy of the coming of Jesus and the return of Jesus. There are ways in which God brings his rule on the earth, right? First, not, not by force, but by a suffering servant, that people might come by our hearts to follow him. But by force later when Jesus comes, and we'll see that when we get to the book of Revelation here in the next couple months. And Paul would have proclaimed all these things over two years when under house arrest in Rome, which... I've taken maybe 10 minutes to talk about the kingdom of God, but he had two years which to really open that up. What a great thing it would have been to have been in that school. But in our text, Luke gives us more specifics about also what he was telling them. He was telling them, verse 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this fourth word I'm just pulling out is teaching. This is what Paul was doing when he was living in. He was welcoming people, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about Jesus, right? Showing how the kingdom of God is being established and particularly telling them about Jesus. Now, as we think about what Paul may have taught about Jesus, what's wonderful about this is we don't need to wonder, right? We don't need to wonder what he's going to say because when Paul was in prison at this time, he wrote some letters, these letters are called prison epistles. Why, why are these letters called prison epistles again? I forgot. <laughs> because he's in prison when he wrote these letters, right? You, what, are, what are the prison epistles? Can you name them for me? There are four of them. Not Romans. Romans he didn't write in prison. He wrote it when he was in Corinth, right? What's a prison epistle? Not Galatians. He wrote that early on. That's a good guess. Okay, we're narrowing down. Other books of the Bible, you want to throw them out there, guess, and you might get them right. What are they? Philippians is one. Ephesians is one, Colossians is one, and Philemon. That one would have been kind of hard this way. I gave that to you. I'll throw, I'll throw that one in. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon. In every single one of these letters, Paul refers to his imprisonment. Whether saying, I'm a prisoner, or in my imprisonment something has turned out, or in captivity, or something like that. And, and a little cursory read of these letters... Right, just shows what Paul certainly would have been telling about Jesus because these were on his mind and these were the things inspired of God he was, he was writing. So just consider Ephesus. Like that's, that's why I'm saying right, verse 31, all of a sudden we've got Ephesians. Right? We've got six chapters of Ephesians in which to talk about what is it he's teaching about the Lord Jesus. Everything he taught in Ephesians would probably certainly have been taught in Rome as well, whether the inspiration came first and he's telling you, well, I wrote this letter, here's what God showed to me, or how that process worked, I'm not exactly sure, but here he is, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that we have every blessing that we need in Jesus. He was certainly telling people about that. That God's plan before the world began was to bring us to Himself through Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Before we were born. Before our parents were born. Before our parents' parents were born. Before Adam and Eve were born. Before the foundation of the world. He chose us to be believers in Christ. It's because faith comes by grace that God gives us. And in Christ Jesus, there is forgiveness. We are adopted and redeemed. Ephesians chapter 1, 5 through 7. In Christ Jesus, chapter 2, we who are dead have been made alive in Christ by His grace, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, right? Not as a result of the works that no one can boast. We can't boast. It's the grace of God that comes upon us, grants us faith so that we believe. Also about Christ is that, that He brings unity between Jews and Gentiles. That's Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And God calls us then as we believe and trust in Jesus to walk in a manner worthy of His calling. Ephesians 4, verse 1. And we are to do so with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Walking in love as Christ loved us. Whether in marriage or in family or 
even in the workplace. The word of love, husbands, you're to love like my dad is loving my mom, right? Like Christ loved the church. Children are submit to their parents. Parents are give godly discipline and direction into the lives of their children. Guiding them, directing them. Even at work, we need to follow, right? Please Christ. And that's, I think, what he's talking about. And I'm sure that these themes were present when Paul's teaching about the Lord Jesus in Rome. That's Ephesians. We spent a lot more time there. Colossians. I, I took a year. We preached through Colossians at church years ago, probably 18 years ago. I went through Colossians 15 years ago. I'm not sure. But this letter is all about Christ. And, 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 and Paul lifts Jesus high. He used these words, Colossians 1, 15 to 18. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. In the beginning, Jesus created the heavens and the earth, is what he's saying. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In everything, Jesus might have first place. So you say, what is he teaching about Jesus? Well, he's teaching that Jesus should be first in all our lives. And he thus, with the supremacy of Christ, urged those in Colossae, don't be taken captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, not according to Christ. He says, don't follow the ways of the world. In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Don't be sucked away by worldly wisdom. It's Jesus where we're made right. Jesus has all the wisdom we need. He's the preeminent one. He's got all the power. Colossians is all about Jesus. And then how we live, right? These familiar themes in our marriage, in our family, in our work life. Even then praise there that I might have salt and know how to speak with others. And I'm sure that these themes are present in Paul's teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in Rome. Ephesians, Colossians. What about Philemon? It's a super practical book about forgiveness. One of those who came to Paul in Rome was a man named Onesimus. He was a runaway slave. But listening to Paul, he believed in Jesus. And um, Paul, when he found that out, real practically, what does it mean to be forgiven? He says, oh, your master um, is Philemon. I know Philemon. I know this guy, and I know he's a believer. So let me write this letter and how about you go back and make things right with him? So he'll forgive you for running away and you'll, you'll be reconciled rightly as believers in Jesus. Listen to what Paul says. Such a loving way. He says, accordingly, Philemon, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required, yet for love's sake I appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus whose father I became in my imprisonment. That is right, I became a spiritual dad to him because he believed. Formerly, as an unbeliever, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he parted you for a while. This perhaps is why he ran away from you, that while you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but much more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. I love his counsel. He says, I, as an apostle, I have authority to command you, but I'm going to appeal to you. Receive him back. And I say, that's, that's the leadership I've tried to model at Rock Valley Bible Church. I mean, it's a, an elder pastor. There's authority I have, but I I'm not trying to use and wield that authority. I just appealed to you for love's sake. Let's, let's go together on these things. And certainly Paul would have thought, here's one aspect of the gospel with forgiveness and what it looks like sending him back. One, and probably many other practical things when he's talking about teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ in Rome. Perhaps about love or, or grace or kindness or gentleness or all those different things. What about Philippians? Right? Uh, again, right? Massive stuff here in verse 31, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians, we spent about a, a year preaching through that book as well. Anyone remember the theme of Philippians, by the way? It just kind of encouraged me. We spent a year, there was like a, 
something on the screen, anyone? That's okay. That's okay. Do you remember? That's okay. Rejoice in the gospel is what Philippians is all about. Right? There's joy in Philippians, but it's joy in partnership of the gospel. These are evident right in the first opening words of Philippi. Philippians 1, verse 3 through 5, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He's saying, I have joy because you've partnered with me in the gospel from the first day you believed even until now. And that's what Philippians is all about. I'm so happy that um, you're walking together in unity and joy and with us and we got this partnership going with the gospel in this book of philippians he speaks about his willingness to sacrifice for christ remember he says uh right to me to live is christ to die is gain should i should i die or should i live i know if i die it's better i'm with christ but if i live it's better for you and so i guess i'm okay to live to minister to you all just the the sacrifice of what it means to sacrifice for Christ. And I'm sure right, these are the things he's teaching about Jesus. Jesus is so worthy. He's the preeminent one. Certainly we can sacrifice for him. And the gospel is made clear in Philippians chapter 3. Just about as clear, as clear, as clear can be. Where Paul puts forth all his religious credentials. He was a born a Jew, circumcised on the eighth day. The tribe of Benjamin. right, A Hebrew of Hebrew, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was just one who, who just rose up the religious ladder to be a teacher of Israel, full of zeal, a persecutor of the church, right? zealous for the truth of what's right. And then he says in Philippians 3, verse 8, all these things I count as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Any religious thing I had, it's loss. Like you, you put a, an accountant, right? Puts things on the gain side and the loss side. He says everything, all, all these right, Israelite, Knowledge of the Scripture, zeal, passion, according to law, found blameless. All my legal requirements, he says, all this is on the lost side. Because I gained Christ. Everything is gone. In fact, Paul considered all these righteous deeds that he did to be sewage. See, because it's not our own righteousness that makes us right before God. Oh, we need righteousness to be right before God, but it's not our law keeping over here on the law side. It's the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, right? Philippians 3 9. That I'm not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And there's the gospel. This is what he's talking about with Jesus. Certainly, these themes would have been there as he was there in Rome for two years. Speaking about the uselessness of all our religious righteous duties, to, like, like going to church and singing. Right? Everything, I mean, it's good, it's helpful, right? Because it leads us to God. And reading the scripture is good and helpful, the oracles of God. But it's, it's not sufficient. In fact, it's not at all. It's, it's Christ who are made right. There's the gospel. Certainly, we just skim the surface about what Paul was teaching those in Rome about the Lord Jesus. We go into depth. All these epistles, but just gives you a taste and a flavor of what he was doing there for two years. So I want to move on as we begin our, our descent of our, our flight, my message this morning. As Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was doing so with all boldness. And there's my word, my fifth word there is boldness. This means that Paul just stated the case for Christ clearly and without a doubt. Boldly. In fact, this is one of the most common themes throughout the book of Acts, right? The boldness of the witness of the apostles. Their boldness was, was noticed and recognized. You remember Peter on the day of, of Pentecost when he stood up and the Holy Spirit came and everyone was speaking in all these tongues. He's describing, he said, this is what happened in the book of, of Joel, but let me tell you about Jesus and the promise that he gave. The Spirit was, was being poured out right now. Then he looked to those who had spoken to Pilate, who had said, Crucify him! Crucify him! He looked them bold in the face and he said, Let all the house of Israel, that's you guys, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That takes boldness to look directly in someone's face. It says, You killed Jesus. And God has made him Lord. You crucified the Lord of glory. 
<clears throat> a little later, Peter was arrested and brought in before the religious council. And again, they confronted. They didn't like his preaching because <laughs> it was convicting them. He didn't like, they didn't like it. <clears throat> and Peter stood up and says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. Looking at all the, you builders, you rejected this stone that was prophesied in Psalm 118. And looking out at this council of 70 men who were responsible. And he said, and there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name given among, and there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Except through Jesus Christ. Bold, bold. Especially bold in the face that they could have done to Peter what they did to Jesus. Who stood before that very same religious council um, just a few weeks, months beforehand. Peter knew that his life was on the line. And we read the next verse after he said there's salvation only in Jesus. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and recognized they'd been with Jesus. So in other words, it wasn't their intelligence. In fact, they noticed that they're, they're uneducated. They're just common men. They're not educated, but they're bold. And they recognize their boldness, not their intelligence. I have this sign on my desk written by Charles Bridges, maybe. I forget. It says, no ministry will be really effective, whatever may be its intelligence, which is not a ministry of strong faith, true spirituality, and deep earnestness. I quote that to myself every day. It's not great intelligence. God bless. Well, even here, it's not the intelligence. They saw the boldness of John and Peter. And they saw that they were uneducated common men, but they were astonished the boldness. And I would say, like, that's same true today. As you're a witness for Jesus, people aren't going to like, oh, wow, he's a really smart guy. They do that. You've taken attention yourself. They say, no, that's a bold man who confidently asserts what is true, what people need to do, and be clear as day with them. Are you bold in your witness? Talking recently with a, a guy who's was married, divorced, and was living with his girlfriend for a while, and then that fizzled, and now he's off with someone else. And he's kind of like, kind of looking to me even for counsel and help. And I'm like, well, you're facing a lot of your problems because whatever you weren't married to your whatever girlfriend for a long time, and she's walking in unrighteous, and you're walking in unrighteous. You need to repent and believe in Jesus. Kind of shut the conversation down. I was kind to him, you know. I still communicate with him. Just emailed him this week. There's just that you can have a kind boldness, you know. Like boldness doesn't have to be like yelling in your face. You can have a kind boldness. I think that's Paul talking about here. Just, just firm. Are you bold in your witness? Do you know how to get bold? Pray. That's what the early church did. Remember the, the, the prayer meeting after Peter and John were released? They prayed. The early church was together, right? We pray, 9 o'clock in the basement. Come, pray, pray for boldness. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They're praying, God, give us boldness to speak. And you know what happened after they prayed that prayer? Give me boldness to speak. God answered a prayer. Amazing. Acts 4.31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered was shaken, and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Boldness. That's what it takes. It's a characteristic of people in Acts. It's a characteristic of, of Paul. From the moment of his salvation, he spoke boldly in the Damascus synagogue. He came down Jerusalem and spoke boldly to those in Jerusalem. Acts 9.28 on his missionary journeys, he spoke boldly, Acts 13, 46. In the synagogues in Ephesus, he spoke boldly, Acts 19, verse 18. Before Agrippa the king, who could punish him and put him to death, he spoke boldly, Acts 26, 26. Bold many times, right? The righteous are as bold as a lion. Let's encourage you to be righteous, understand what you have, Firm and secure in your faith and speak boldly for Jesus. If ever the kingdom will come, if ever we'll apply acts, pray for it. 
Well, let's move to our final, final word, and this is, we got some great application for us here. Unhindered. That's how we see Paul. He says, he was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It's one word in the Greek. Unhindered. Ah, I forget what the word is exactly right now, but uh, unhindered. <clears throat> speaks about how Paul was able to speak these things. His house arrest, right? It's like my finger, right? It is numb. Still, it's still numb. Preaching hasn't solved that yet. I hope in a couple of days it'll be solved. It's, it's unpleasant, but it's tolerable. I, I have total freedom to do whatever I want. I can, I can go out and do anything as I want. As I type, though, it kind of hurts because it, it kind of get, gets down there. But, but I'm not hindered. But I'm still doing it. I'm still okay. I'm not complaining. Paul wasn't either. He was, he was there, unbonds, in chains, with a, a Roman soldier all the time. And you happen to the Roman soldiers who came? Philippians 4, Philippians 1, 12 through 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has been known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. All the soldiers who come are guarding me, but are watching all of you come and gather, and you're hearing me talk about the kingdom of God and speaking about the Lord Jesus with boldness and security, and every single guard here hears about Christ. Some even of Caesar's household, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. There's the example of Christ. Of Paul, just right there, speaking boldly. You've got these Roman soldiers right there guarding you. All these people around, speaking boldly for Christ, and the gospel was was going out. It was progressing. And I just think about you, right? Let me just answer: Are you hindered in preaching the gospel? Which of you are hindered? <clears throat> now there might be some things at work <clears throat> where there's a little bit of a hindrance. And when I was working in the IT world, I was reproved by my boss for talking during work hours about Jesus. So, like, afterwards maybe be a good time. So maybe there's some, you got to get your work done, right? But are you hindered? You know what, if I was preaching this sermon in, in other countries, say in Iran, I was preaching this sermon to a church, just saying, are you hindered to preach the gospel? Every hand would go up. Said, yeah. yeah. If they find out I believe in Jesus, I'd be killed. Because we can't. Okay, that's not any of you, right? You have no threats upon your life for believing in Jesus. So, are you his witness? Paul was unhindered, and so he was a bold witness. You're not being hindered. Are you a bold witness? I mean, this is, this is the book of Acts, right? This is my final admonition. This is my final press upon you in the book of Acts. Are you as witnesses? You know, there's a, a missions organization called Acts 29. I, I trust that many of you have heard that organization before because that's what comes after Acts 28. And Acts 29 is not inspired, right? Because there is no Acts 29, but it does speak about our life in the world. And we live in Acts 29. We seek to build the kingdom of Christ. And we do so through being witnesses. I remember early on when we started Rock Valley Bible Church, um, in fact, before we'd even gone to Sunday morning, I was given an opportunity to speak to our, our grandmother church and sending us out and um, just to tell them about the church and what's going on. And, and I, um, I, I preached from um, 1 Thessalonians and Acts 17 and talking about how our mission strategy in Rockford was simply boldness. Says I've not I've not read all the church growth things or done any demographic studies up here in Rockford. I'm just saying we we just need to be bold with Jesus and trust that God will take care of the rest. And just encourage you all to be bold with Jesus, be a witness of Christ, and trust the Lord for the results. Right? This is the the last chapter of the book of Acts, but it is not the last chapter of Paul's life. It's not the last chapter of our lives as well. In fact, in many ways, it's just the first chapter to go out and be bold witnesses for Jesus. Well, we're going to then celebrate the Lord's Supper. So we transition there and just think about things.
The gospel couldn't be more clear than it is in Philippians 3. I already preached from there. Let's just read from there as we think about taking the Lord's Supper again and what it means. So turn to Philippians 3. I just want to read it. Point there, what, what is Paul's teaching as he was there? Philippians 3, verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. It's safe for you. Here he is in prison, and he's writing to those in Philippi, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And put no confidence in the flesh. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. Just saying, Christ, all the things I have on my gain column are lost. I glory in Christ Jesus. No confidence in my religious achievements. Though, Paul says in verse 4, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for the confidence, I have far more. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law of Pharisee, as to zeal of persecuted the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, sewage, dung, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. It's about acknowledging to God, to Christ, that says, you know what, all the gain I have, all the religious accomplished achievements, anything I have is nothing, it is loss. All I have is Christ. And I willingly eat that bread and drink that cup because that's where my hope is. Not in the bread and in the cup, but in what that represents. When Jesus on that night said, this is my body for you. This is, this is the blood of the covenant for you. Right? Like, eat this in remembrance of me. And so it's a matter of eating in remembrance to Christ. So I'll pray, and then we'll sing a song. The men will come and pass out the elements. If you're in Christ, by all means, celebrate with us. But if you're not, this isn't for you. If you're trusting in your own works, uh, this supper is not for you. We pray. Father, I thank you for the book of Acts. Thank you for these two and a half years that we have spent here. And um, Lord, I would pray that this great application would be uh, true of us, that we would be your witnesses. Um, God, speaking forth the greatness of Christ, that He is everything. And all we need to do is speak of what we've found and experienced, that by believing and trusting Him, He's transformed our lives, given us new hearts and desires that we never experienced before. And now our greatest heart and desire is to serve You. To serve Jesus and forgive me of my sins. Come join the party. It's what our invitation to other people is, as we witness to them, inviting them to repent and believe in the Gospel. And so, Father, I, I would pray as we celebrate the, the supper here this morning, once again, every Sunday here in Lent, God, again, reminding us of Jesus and all that He is for us. I pray that our time would be like encouraging, strengthening, uplifting. Again, as we merely just say, this way you've told us to, just by eating and drinking, just saying, Christ, You are my all. I'm trusting in You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.